Well, good morning, everybody. Good to see everybody here today. Uh, I joined a new club this last weekend, and by that, I mean you would not be lying if you called me grandpa today. So that's the club that I joined. <laughs> thank you so much, and uh, thank you for all your, your prayers and your well wishes and the congratulations. And uh, if you're interested at all, after service, I might just have one or two or a thousand pictures of her on my phone if you want to see her out in the, the foyer when we're done. So let's get through this so I can go smother somebody with some kisses, okay? All right, I want to start off with a story this morning about two guys who were hunting in the northern part of the United States. One of the guys yells out and his friend looks up and sees a grizzly bear charging at them. The first guy goes to his tent, grabs his tennis shoes and starts putting them on. His buddy says, what are you doing? Are you nuts? Don't you know that you can't outrun a grizzly bear? And his friend said, I don't have to outrun the grizzly. I just have to outrun you, right? Seems that looking out for number one seems to be the norm in our culture. Does it not? And in the book of Ecclesiastes, here's what we're going to find. King Solomon, one of the greatest kings in all of Israel, one of the greatest kings in all the Bible... He uses the book of Ecclesiastes as his personal journal, his personal diary, because Solomon is on a search for one thing in life. Where can I find meaning? Where can I find significance? What can I put my hands to that's going to outlast me when I am dead and gone? And he indulges himself in all the things that we are told as human beings will bring us happiness and contentment if we indulge in them. And here's what he realized after indulging in these things, he realized how empty a human life is when it elevates self over others. Solomon writes in this book, he says, I built great buildings like none of which ever been built before. I attained and earned massive wealth. I threw great parties. I even had a harem I did everything a person could do under the sun, and I looked out for number one. And I learned some things, he said. Some lessons I had to learn the hard way. But before we look at those lessons, let me just share with you another story, okay? I want to talk to you about a guy named Bill Havens. He was selected to represent the United States canoeing team at the 1924 Olympics in Paris, France. This is something he had trained for a good part of his life, and he and his teammates were so good that they were favored to bring home the gold. However, Bill's wife was pregnant. All right? So the doctor estimated that her delivery date would be right about the exact same time that Bill would be representing the United States in Paris, France. And you got to remember, friends, in 1924, there was no hopping on a jet going over to Europe in 10, 12 hours. This was a slow, several-day trip on a transatlantic liner, okay? So he had a choice to make. Do I go and try to fulfill a lifelong dream and compete for the gold, or do I stay home and be with my wife and welcome our newborn child into the world. His wife encouraged him to go. Go, go, go. She said, this is once a lifetime opportunity. You go and I'll be fine. But Bill Havens chose to stay. 
Ironically, his wife delivered much later than anticipated, which meant that had he gone to the Olympic Games, he would have had plenty of time to compete and come back and be there for the delivery of his child. And his team did win the gold. But Bill Haven said, I have no regrets. Do you know why? Because he chose and prioritized relationships over achievements. And I guess the question would be asked is, did he make the right decision? And King Solomon who had done everything a man could do under the sun and achieved about everything a person could do, would say, you know what? I think he made the right decision. Because here's what King Solomon concludes. Solomon contends that one of the reasons why life can be so meaningless is because of the loneliness that a person feels when they are self-absorbed. I want you to listen to Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 9. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. Listen to this. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. You know what Solomon is saying here? He's shouting through a megaphone to the world that the loner is a goner. If you're traveling through life alone, you are a goner. And you know what? That idea kind of rubs against the grain of our culture. Because here in America, do you know who we idolize and who we lift up and who we all want to be like? It's that rugged individualist, right? That's what we cherish. In fact, we've been uh, told this myth that seems to get perpetuated that our country became great because of the John Wayne types who went out on their own, and they defeated the challenges that were before them, right, single-handedly. But you and I both know that our country became great, and we are what we are, not because of one person doing this and one person doing that, but because the American people came together in community. You know where else I see this spirit of rugged individualism? I even see it in the church. I've been guilty of saying, and you've been guilty of saying at times, something like this. You know, I never realized God was all I needed until God was all I what? Had. Do you know that even in Scripture, God never says that he is all you need? I mean, think about it. God creates this amazing, perfect world creates this human being named Adam who lives in perfect innocence, places him in this perfect world where he enjoys intimate one-on-one fellowship with his creator. And it's his creator who looks at the situation and says, no, that's not good. Man is too what? Alone. I've got to remedy this. People need people. 
And if there was anybody who could have ever refuted this, it would have been Jesus. Because Jesus lived the most complete whole life of any human being ever. And yet, only on a few different occasions do we find Jesus alone. And that's when he's in intimate prayer with the Father. Other than that, Jesus deliberately chose to live in community with people and to do life in the company of his other disciples. So the life of Jesus proves two is always better than one. Let me take you back a few years past 1924. It's the year 1936. The Olympic Games are now being held in the country of Germany, the capital of Berlin, And Adolf Hitler is the host. This is the first televised Olympic Games. And Hitler is hoping to make the point to the world that the German Aryan race is the superior race because he believes in his heart of hearts that they will sweep all the medals, proving to the world that they are the superior race. But there was one black sharecropper's son at that Olympics who exploded that myth. You know what his name was? Jesse Owens. Jesse Owens got four gold medals at that Olympics, more than anybody had ever brought home before. But that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is I want to show you a very, very, very unlikely friendship that was birthed out of those Olympic Games between Jesse Owens and a German named Lutz Long. I want you to watch the story here briefly. On August 3, 1936, Jesse won the 100-meter sprint, defeating fellow African-American Ralph Metcalf in a world record time of 9.4 seconds. The very next day, Owens nearly didn't qualify for the long jump. He fouled on his first two jumps. German competitor Carl Lutz Long, a model Aryan Nazi and Owens' stiffest competition, offered some friendly advice as to where to mark a takeoff point. This adjustment helped Owens qualify for the event and eventually garnered Jesse his second gold medal of the week with an Olympic record jump of 26.67 feet. Long was the first to congratulate the new record holder and took a victory lap around the track with Owens arm in arm. Owens said of this moment, You can melt down all the medals and cups I have and they wouldn't be a plating on the 24-carat friendship I felt for Lutz Long at that moment. Did you catch what Jesse Owens said about his competitor? He said, you could melt down all the medals and cups that I've won, and they wouldn't be enough to plate the 24-carat friendship I felt for Lutz Long. Proving again that what Solomon said is so true, that two are better than one. And Solomon gives us several reasons why we can bank on that and live in that. Here's the first thing Solomon teaches us. Because a friend shows up when you fall down. All right, listen to what Solomon says. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. Let me tell you a little bit about Mick, the little terrier, who they're still talking about in Barnsley, England. All right? Percy the Chihuahua, Mick the terrier's little friend, Percy got hit by a car. Percy's owner, Christine, picked him up felt no heartbeat, saw his eyes were glazed over, cried tears, put him in a sack, and buried him in the garden because he was dead. However, Mick the Terrier, who used to pal around and frolic with little Percy the Chihuahua, went to the garden, started digging feverishly, 
grabbed the bag by his teeth, drug it up to the porch of Christine, the owner, and she opened up the sack and found Percy the Chihuahua very much alive and very glad to be out of the ground. And here's the moral of the story, folks. This world is full of people who are willing to bury you. When you mess up, when you fall down, when you get run over by the circumstances of life, they are willing to bury you. But Solomon says, a friend is going to be there to catch you when you fall. Because what a true friend is interested in is not condemnation, but restoration. Brushing off the dirt, breathing new life into you. In fact, here's what Paul said to the church at Galatia, Galatians 6.1. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, if they're buried, if they're neck deep, how do you respond to that? You who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted Carry each other's burdens, and in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. That's what friends do. They don't pile on, they pick up. You know, when Jesus was ministering in his day and time, we read his teaching that he gave to the masses and to his own followers. And here's what he said to them on a couple of different occasions. He said, listen, guys. As you're out preaching and teaching and representing me and my name, as you're out doing these things, whatever you do, don't deny me. No matter how hot the pressure, no matter how loud the threats, no matter how painful the persecution, whatever you do, don't deny me. Don't break off allegiance with me in the eyes of others. And yet, what do we find Jesus' good friend, his comrade, his partner Peter doing Not just once, not just twice, but three times Peter committed the cardinal sin of what? Denying Jesus. Jesus had every right to bury Peter, to wash his hands of him, to be done and say, now he's proven himself not to be worthy. But that's not what Jesus did. Jesus restores Peter, picks him up when he'd fallen off the ground, brushes him off and says, Peter, He looks him right in the eye and says, you are still my man for the job. Maybe, just maybe, this is why Jesus was called the friend of sinners. Because a friend picks you up when you fall down. You know what else a friend does? A friend will help you out when you face life. Listen to what Solomon says. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? What's Solomon mean here? Here's what it is. It's a metaphor saying that sometimes life can get really, really cold and harsh. And just like you and I can't change the weather, no matter how bad we wish we could sometimes, guess what else we can't change? The circumstances that come your way and the circumstances that come my way. Like when a spouse dies, a job is lost, a disease is diagnosed, a child has a handicap, or a little child learns that daddy's leaving and he's not going to be back. 
Sometimes life just has to be faced because it can't be fixed. And just like your friends and my friends can't fix some of the things in my life, some of the circumstances that come my way, they can't make a cold night turn warm in my life, here's what they can do. They can make those cold nights a lot more bearable. Amen? And we've been there before, haven't we? There's an old proverb that says this, A shared joy is a double joy, and a shared sorrow is what? Half the sorrow. Remember the prophet Elijah from the Old Testament? The wicked queen Jezebel had a a death threat against him. She had a bounty on his head. Most of the country had turned to idolatry under her evil influence. He's running for his life, and he gets so down, so depressed, so sick and tired of everything that he just cries out, Lord, I'm done. Just take me home. I've had it with this. Just take my life now. And do you remember how God ministered to Elijah during that time in his life? He did so in numerous ways, but specifically, he sent into Elijah's life a new friend, a new protege, another prophet named Elisha. And you never read about Elijah ever being alone again. Jezebel was still on her throne, still after him. Idolatry was still rampant throughout the nation. But now at least on his mission, Elijah had someone to face it with him. He was no longer alone. So life can be cold, and we know that hardship is inevitable, but friends, loneliness does not have to be. So Solomon tells us that two are better than one because a friend will show up when you fall down, a friend will help out when you face life, and guess what else a friend will do? They will join in when you fight back. Listen to what we read here. The one may be overpowered. Two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. You know, I'm convinced that one of Satan's greatest strategies against the people of God, and let me warn you and remind you, we are in a battle. Every day we are in the thick of it. We are doing battle against not flesh and blood, but as Scripture says, against the powers of darkness and the principalities of the air. We are in a battle. And one of his greatest tactics against the people of Jesus is to isolate us. And then we become easy prey. Just like we see this in the wild, right? You've watched any nature shows. You see that the predator, how he gets the prey, even though there's a thousand of the prey and there's safety in numbers, if he can just isolate one of them, he will overcome them. In the same way, our enemy only has a handful of tricks, but friends, he uses them because they work. And here's what he does. He isolates us through shame, through guilt, and through pride so that we just live these isolated lives. Remember that spirit of rugged individualism I talked to you about earlier? Said how we hear it sometimes even in the church through things people say. And there's even another way that we hear it in the church sometimes. And it, it sounds so subtle and so innocent, but we need to think through this. Sometimes we hear people say, well, you need to have a personal relationship with Jesus. And that's a good phrase. We don't find it in the Bible. It's a good phrase. And 
I like it. It's biblical that our faith must be a personal decision. The problem I have with that, though, is oftentimes we equate the word personal with the word private. Do you see what I'm saying? That we think, okay, a personal relationship with Jesus means a private relationship with Jesus. And nowhere in Scripture do we find where God expects faith to be private. Faith, by its very nature, by its very essence, must be public. This is why you'll never find Jesus when he sends out the 70, when he sends out the disciples to go minister. He never sends anybody out on a solo mission. He always sends them out at least in pairs. And I think this is why we read something like this in James 5.16. Follow with me if you would. Here's what James says to the church. He says, therefore, confess your sins to, and we expect him to say to God, right? Because it's me and God. This is a private thing. It's a private deal between me and God. I'm not going to tell my sins to you, right? No, that's not what James says. We should confess our sins to God first and foremost, but James says it's got to go beyond that. You confess your sins to who? Each other. And pray not just to God, but to pray for what? Each other, so that you may be healed. You help each other, James says, by staying aware of how the enemy is working in the lives of your friends. You stick up for, you confess to, and you pray for each other. That's what a friend will do, folks. They will take your part so the enemy doesn't tear you apart. You know, sometimes you come across a song that has deep biblical overtones. Almost sounds like something that you could read straight from the pages of Scripture, right? There was such a song written back in 1970 that many of you might remember. I want to share with you the lyrics because... It personifies this point. Here's what it says, and some of you will catch on even as I'm going. When you're weary and feeling small, when tears are in your eyes, I'll dry them all. I'm on your side when times get rough and friends just can't be found. You know what the rest is? Like a bridge over what? Troubled waters. I will lay me down. I will lay me down. And that's exactly what Jesus did, what Jesus does, and calls us to do for our friends. So let's spend this last few minutes looking at John 15. Jesus says, my command is this, Love each other as I have loved you. Man, that's a tall, tall order, is it not? Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you might go and bear fruit. Catch this, fruit that will last. 
you catch that? Jesus just told us there's something you can do in your life, there's something I can do in my life that will what? Last. It's going to outlive me. It's going to outlive you. This was Solomon's greatest frustration. Solomon said, no matter how many buildings I build, they're all going to come down someday. No matter how many parties I throw, all the guests are going to leave. No matter how much money I earn and wealth I acquire, it's going to be end up left to somebody else. And what Jesus says here, in a nutshell, is this, folks. You don't want to live a life of futility, a life of meaninglessness and hopelessness. You don't want to live that kind of life. Then Jesus says, friendships trump futility. Jesus is saying to his disciples, and he says to you and I, I want you guys to live together as friends, and I want you to go in this community, and I want you to bear fruit. And that fruit is going to last. Do you know why that fruit will last? Because human beings, the soul of human beings, are the only thing that is going to last forever outside of the Word of God. Amen? So that's an investment that you're always going to get yields from. It's always going to produce dividends because people are the only thing that will last forever. It's not what you build. It's not what you earn. It's not what you buy. It's not what you put in a lockbox at the bank or a safe in your home. The only thing that will last is people. What you do with people, what you do for people. And friends, we can do so much more together than any of us can do alone. One last picture. Here's a guy named Frank, good-looking guy. The time is 1952, Helsinki, Finland. And Frank has just won the individual canoeing gold medal. He immediately sends a telegram to his dad saying the following. Dad, I won. I'm bringing home the gold medal you lost while waiting for me to be born. There's a message there, folks. A message I've been trying to get through your minds this whole time. And here's what the message is. The Lord will honor. The Lord will crown. The Lord will reward those of us who put relationship above achievement. He has said it. Nothing you do in this life is going to last unless it's done for the benefit of someone else. Jesus said it this way. Even a cup of cold water in my name will not lose its reward. Let's pray about this this morning. Father, thank you for your word that shows us what model friends look like. That when you created us to be relational beings, you had something in mind. You knew that we were going to fall, and you knew we needed friends to be there to pick us up, to, to dust the dirt off, and to send us on our way when the rest of the world wants to bury us. 
You knew that life is going to throw challenges our way that we can't fix, and the only option is to face, and it's a cold, dark night of the soul, and friends help to bring a little more warmth. And Lord, we acknowledge that we are in a battle every day against demonic spiritual foes that want to do us in and isolate us. And you've said for us to be in touch with one another, to confess our sins and faults to one another, to, to pray for one another, Lord, for strength because of the battle that we're in. And I thank you, Lord, that our story doesn't have to be like Solomon's. We can get to the end of our life and we can have a treasure trove of investments that we've made in people. And we can die satisfied knowing that our life counted for something besides self. So, Lord, we just give this time to you to convict us of maybe where we're elevating self in front of others, where we need to step it up and be there more for our friends. So, Lord, we give you this time right now thanking you for the one who laid his life down in every possible way a life could be laid down to show the extent of his love for us. We're thankful today, Lord, that because of that, we can say we are a friend of God. So, Lord, may these kind of friendships characterize this church as we go deeper in your word and deeper in life with one another. So, Lord, I pray today, if there's heavy hearts burdened with something, they'll come to the back porch and receive prayer that we would love to offer on their behalf. If there's someone who's not a friend of Jesus, hasn't asked Jesus to be their Lord and their Savior and their God and their King, I pray that today, Lord, they can leave this place knowing you as a friend. So we give this time to you, Lord, now to move and to have your way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.